0: Presta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Presta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. I'm Hal Cresta. Thanks for being with me. Uh, We're looking at two hours, talking about the things that matter most, and we have got some wonderful uh, segments with us today. How about the book of Hebrews, for instance? Shane Kapler joining me in the, the second hour. What does the letter to the Hebrews tell us about our faith? This is one of those overviews and we'll see seven core beliefs of Catholics and how they emerge in this critically important book in the New Testament. There's nothing quite like uh, the letter to the Hebrews, by the way. For, for centuries, it was assumed that it was written by St. Paul. No, that is no longer the case, uh, although there some scholars still maintain that um, St. Paul was the author of it. But regardless, it is rich with... Theology, especially bringing together the covenants, so you get the Catholic understanding of priesthood and its relationship to the old covenant. You get a discussion of the nature of the covenants, and you'll shame will do a great job taking a look at uh, this letter to the Hebrews. Also coming up, our friend Teresa Tamio, post of Catholic Connection, she'll be uh, going in October. Although I don't wait till October. She's got a wonderful pilgrimage coming up. It's the uh, Living La Dolce Vita. It's her wonderful tour of Italy, following in the footsteps of St. Padre Pio, St. Maria Goretti, and many more. And In this particular pilgrimage, they actually go to both coasts of Italy, so it's, it's going to be a great time. She also leaves a lot of breathing room, too, on these pilgrimages, so you can kind of absorb uh, what you're seeing. Also coming up uh, on today's program, uh, Jimmy Mitchell joins us, uh, Letting Beauty Speak, drawing on a passage from the book of Ecclesiastes, where we read how God has made everything beautiful in its time. Well, how do we keep this in mind in a rather ugly and noisy world? And then we'll look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, Lent, the great Lutheran theologian and martyr, we'll look at his Lenten message for Catholics. Ken Kirkcraft, Chair of Moral Theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary, joining us for that. But first, let's get to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave
0: Maria Radio News. For Friday, March 1st, it's the Feast of St. David of Wales. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The two largest pharmacy chains in the U.S. will begin selling abortion pills as soon as this month. Walgreens and CVS will start selling mifepristone at certain pharmacies in states where it's legal to do so. According to separate statements, the FDA certified both chains to dispense the pill. The largest wildfire in Texas history is growing and isn't being controlled. NBC's Morgan Chesky is in the Texas panhandle with the latest. This Smokehouse Creek fire... Uh, now exceeding more
1: than a million acres, not only makes it the largest wildfire in Texas state history, uh, but it's also covering a larger area than the last 20 California wildfires.
0: The Smokehouse Creek fire started Monday north of Amarillo and has scorched over a million acres. Yesterday, it spread into Oklahoma, where it has burned over 30,000 acres. Pope Francis met yesterday with the Superior General of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, also known as the FSSP. During the meeting, the Pope confirmed that the restrictions on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass do not apply to this order. The February 29th meeting came amid a broad crackdown on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass in 2021. The U.S. will begin airdrops of humanitarian aid into Gaza. The humanitarian situation has become dire on the Gaza Strip as Israeli forces continue operations in the region. And Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been laid to rest in Moscow. A funeral for the vocal critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin was held today, two weeks after he died in prison. Thousands of mourners attended the service. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark.
1: good afternoon I'm Al Cresta I came across an article from actually I think about two years ago a Catholic World Report article which was reporting on Jesuit High School in Tampa Florida and the article was taking a look at how Jesuit High there was creating a culture of conversion and in fact they had seen 22 students uh, convert in the past year through their RCIA program and the campus uh, director of campus ministry there, Jimmy Mitchell, was talking about the role that beauty played in creating a culture of conversion, and now he has actually published a book called Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise, and uh, it's good to have you with me, Jimmy, thanks.
2: Thank you so much, Al, it's great to be with you and your listeners today.
1: Are things still well with you there at Jesuit High?
2: It's great timing, actually, for the interview. I just wrapped up an all-day retreat for all of our RCIA candidates. We're rounding out the the school year, as you can imagine. This is my third year down here in Tampa at Jesuit High School in this role uh, as director of campus ministry. And uh, every year, you know, since that article is released, we've had another 15 to 20 students (laughs) come into the church. And today I had the privilege of uh, accompanying um, the students who are going to be either baptized or received into the church uh, in just two days'
1: time. So we're we're really excited about that. That's tremendous. Uh, People, when they hear that, they want to know how. I mean, how are you... I love the phrase, by the way, culture of conversion. I think that's really smart. But tell me, what do you do to create a culture of conversion at a Catholic high school?
2: I really think it all begins with visionary, prayerful... Uh, and solid leadership. You know, we have an incredible president who's been at the school now for 15 years, mm-hmm. Father Richard Hermes. And you know, he's built around him a team, you know, from from the principal and, you know, the administration that runs the kind of internal affairs of the school every day, um, all the way to, you know, our social media feed, you can see Christ is clearly on the throne of our campus. And you know, we're a big sports school and our academics are top-notch, but Mm -hmm. the young men who come in as freshmen uh, invariably have some profound encounter with the Lord, whether that's in a theology class, which happens every day, or uh, a pretty intense retreat that happens at least once a year, or one of our summer pilgrimages or mission trips or even an all-school mass in our gorgeous, uh, newly renovated chapel. I mean, this thing is, is five years old, but it looks like we picked it up out of Rome and plopped it down in camp and we start every day inside that chapel. So there's a lot of opportunities for these young men to encounter the love of God and be really transformed by it.
1: I mean, it, does, it sounds like you're really consistent in uh, having uh, uh, that you're actually building uh, for a very clear purpose, and that is to enable uh, young men to encounter Christ in a variety of different ways. Uh, Tell me about the role that beauty plays in all this.
2: Well, I already hinted at the chapel. I had a young man come in to my office there in Campus Ministry, uh, and this has been about a year ago, right after we installed four brand new statues of the evangelists that had all been commissioned in Florence. So we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the four highest points of the chapel above all of the side altars, by the way, that are dedicated to great Jesuit martyrs. I mean it's an all boys school, right? So we have the sure. most gruesome martyrdom scenes we could find. Yeah. <laughs> and we put them above all of these side altars to inspire the young men in heroic virtue, to inspire them in their own lives of faith. So this this senior walks into my office and it looks like he's about to cry and he says, Mr Mitchell, ever since those statues were installed I've just had this desire for God and this desire for prayer, and I've never felt that before in my entire life. And, you know, it was a chemist minister's dream. He basically walked in and said, can you teach me how to pray? And it was the images and the statues and, you know, just the, the beauty of the chapel that ultimately turned his heart towards the divine, towards the transcendent and gave him what was clearly a, a, a prevenient grace uh, to, to want to know how to speak to God and to hear God's voice. So, you know, that's one example of many where beauty can even reach into the heart of, a, of an 18-year-old young man and, and bring him to the Lord.
1: Where did the students come from? Uh, what kind of backgrounds do they have?
2: That's an excellent question. That's part of what's so interesting is, you know, it's not that most of the families sending their sons to Jesuit are sending them there for the faith, you know, again, the sports are huge, and the academics are top-notch, so, you know, we've got a a huge variety, only about, you know, we'll we'll say 70 to 75 percent of our student body is Catholic, and then uh, of those, I would say a minority are are practicing. I mean, if we're talking about just the basic precepts of the Church, you know, uh, very few are living um, those precepts alongside their families, and so, you know, we've got these 15 to 20 um, every year who aren't Catholic, who decide to become Catholic. But then amongst the, the nominal Catholics, we'll say, there's a whole nother sort of wave of conversion each year, and it's because for you know many of them, they've not heard the fullness of the truth. They've right. never really made a good confession. They've uh, perhaps never been to a liturgy that really kind of set their heart um, you know in motion, uh, towards the Lord and towards sort of the, the heavenly liturgy that, of course, every Mass is is you know, bringing to earth. So I, I do think that the, the variety of backgrounds lends itself uh, to the culture of conversion um, on our campus because, frankly, uh, so few come in with faith. I mean, true practiced, lived out personal faith, Mm -hmm. it does become a huge opportunity uh, for us in the work of evangelization.
1: I mean, I think it's just wonderful and remarkable, and um, there are many people, and I'm sure you've met them over the years, who are involved in ministry, who would say to themselves that what you have to do is you have to basically accommodate the faith, and so stay away from you know any difficult areas, uh, and somehow if you water down the faith, that uh, people find it more able to tolerate it. Uh, what would you say to somebody who presented that to you? Yeah, that's a
2: very tempting mindset, and I, I totally understand where people are coming from when they say that. But all I can say, from personal experience, and particularly uh, in these last three years of, of working at Jesuit High School in Tampa is we take the opposite approach. You know, we, we go after all the hardest issues and the most uh, difficult uh, to, to grasp doctrines of our faith. You mm-hmm. know, these young men know what they're up against because the culture is really showing uh, showing itself for, for what it really is. Right. So, you know, it seemed for a long time um, that the, the devil was a little bit uh, sneakier, a little bit subtler, um, but it seems like right now uh, he has just pulled all of his um, cards from his vest and just made it very clear uh, what he's all about. So evil's on full display is, is my point. And I think our students want to be able, um, after their four years at Jesuit, to, to stand up against that evil and to fight for the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so we don't hold back uh, in the classroom. We don't hold back on retreats. We don't even hold back, frankly, in our all-school masses, uh, the, the kind of homilies that they're used to hearing from our priests. Uh, their next level, and again, uh, totally uncompromising in terms of uh, the communication of, of, of truth and doctrine, but ultimately of God's love. And I think that's why it works, is because we're really um, providing a formation that integrates the head and the heart, mm-hmm. so where we're helping the guys defend the faith. Of course, we want them to walk out of there with a the solid foundation and apologetics and you know the, the full deposit of our, of our Catholic faith, for sure. But we also want them to walk out of there as true disciples who have deep prayer lives, who entrust themselves to the Lord in the sacraments, and who really see themselves primarily as sons of, of God the Father. And I think that's sort of the sweet spot of keeping the head and the heart really integrated. Yeah,
1: yeah so you're, I mean, uh, uh, I'm sure you have a great appreciation for apologetics, but that's not your sole uh, uh, menu there. You've got a much broader uh, art of persuasion going on.
2: That's right. And we want these young men, ultimately, to become great saints. You right. know, there's uh, a priest who used to be um, in charge of campus ministry at the school, and he comes from a Jesuit institution in England called Stonyhurst. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, or historically, an all-boys school, I think it's been co-ed now for about 20 years, they've got Ten, fifteen, something like that, uh, double-digit uh, number of alumni who are either martyrs, blesseds, or canonized saints. Okay, uh, now that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I will say, you know, uh, that that would be a, a dream that one day we would have young men who are beatified or canonized or even God-willing or, you know, by God's grace, uh, martyrs, right? We're we're not really living in those kinds of times. Like, we'll say, you know, the Reformation in in England 400 years ago, 500 years Mm -hmm, ago. mm -hmm. Um, But that's our goal. We want our young men to walk out of here, not just faithful Catholics. That would, of course, be the the baseline hope for every one of our guys. But ultimately, we're empowering them to be saints and to transform the world, to transform their college campuses, their future families, if they're called to the priesthood, their future parishes. Uh, We really try to fuel them with with big dreams of what their lives can be for the Lord's greater glory.
1: Do do you ever run into parents who say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Um, I I didn't bank on this. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes. I
2: love (laughs) our parents so much, and they come along for this pretty wild ride, and obviously... uh, there's a, there's a lot of uh, expectations that have to be adjusted along the way. You know, for example, there's three to five young men every single school year who aren't able to go through with the RCA process simply because their parents won't give them permission. Um, there's, oh. there's another handful that I know quite personally who are, you know, at least um, personally and and you know prayerfully discerning uh, vocations to the priesthood, um, but they're not yet at a point of being able to really talk to their parents about that. Mm. Parents want them to be doctors or lawyers sure. or entrepreneurs. So um, we love the parents. We I, I'm so grateful that the parents entrust their sons to us. You know, even just for those eight hours every day. Um, but what I've seen happen in many cases, it's the conversion of the student. That then, you know, sort of have, has a ripple effect on the family and can nice. bring about even the conversion of his parents. So that's always the hope. It's not always what happens, but I, I do see it happening yeah. regularly.
1: How did you guys deal with COVID? Well, it is Florida,
2: so we had a lot of political coverage down here. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was uh, not nearly as tragic here as it was elsewhere. You know, the, the first year, uh, we'll say 2020, 2021. Uh, we wore masks like everybody else, sure. but we were open for the entirety of that school year. We, we did everything that we always do. And frankly, by 2021, 2022, everything was back to normal. We relaunched our European pilgrimage. Everything was back to how it has always been. So now it kind of feels like COVID was a a little uh, bump or, you know, uh sort of a, a, a brief sort of hiatus on the radar screen um, of, our, of our campus life. Um, but it definitely took its toll, and, you know, many of our students dealt with issues coming out of lockdowns that, you know, thanks be to God, there's been a lot of healing and restoration from since.
1: Yeah. Jimmy, hold it there. We've got to take a break, come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Jimmy Mitchell. He's the author of Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Good afternoon, I'm Al Tresta. With me, Jimmy Mitchell, Director of Campus Ministry at Jesuit High in Tampa, Florida, and author of Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. Jimmy, you point out that uh, at some point you got to be a frustrated uh, evangelist, and um, after several years you said you began praying and fasting, studied history and philosophy. What did you learn? How did that change you?
2: That's a great question. I, I think because of my sort of love for education, you know, kind of from a young age, I was always the, the kid who was pretty eager to learn. You know, very happy to sit in the front row. Probably a bit of a teacher's pet, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I was always hungry for truth, and this really exploded when I got to college. And suddenly, I was surrounded by atheists and evangelicals, and very few like-minded Catholics. And it forced me to really sharpen my intellectual edge. You know, I had to learn apologetics. I had to know even just the fundamentals of our faith in a way that had never been necessary before. But what I found is as my own sort of intellectual conversion was unfolding, I would be, uh, frankly, a a bit coarse with people and even uh, aggressive in my Mm. attempts to convince them that the Catholic faith was the fullness of the truth, which, which is obviously the case. Sure. Uh, you know, that our faith has the fullness of means of salvation, which is also the case. But very seldom did those arguments convince any of my friends to become Catholic, hmm. to even become Christian in some cases. So what I learned, really the hard way, uh, was that I needed to win people over through beauty and the kind of beauty uh, that the Church has always been sort of... Uh, at the top of her game with, we're talking, you know, everything from Michelangelo uh, and, and Mozart all the way to just the beauty of holiness found in the saints. And I, I realized, you know, this is kind of where this book sort of uh, came out of was I needed to be first and foremost living a beautiful, captivating, compelling Christian life yeah. that made people ask me the questions. You know, where yeah. I wouldn't even have to to step into sort of that that awkward fray and, and offer. You know, some teaching of the church out of the blue on a street corner, uh, or next to somebody on an airplane, but but rather to to have the kind of look in my eyes, the kind of joy about me, the kind of heroic virtue that we know uh, is you know part and parcel of of being uh, a saint or aspiring towards towards holiness. And so that's my way of saying that it was really over and over and over again that the the beauty of the church. In her art, and the beauty of holiness found in the saints that led to my own deepening of conversion, and we'll say softening of heart, yeah. but also it led to the conversion of so many people around me. And uh, while, wow. while truth is truth, and it sets us free, and it's ultimately a person named Jesus Christ, and he's the Savior of us all, truth without beauty, uh, it, it can be very cold, and it can be very... Um, you know, ineffective, particularly in an age like ours, which is so fraught with relativism.
1: Yeah, I think it was Benedict XVI that said something to this effect: that the final apologetic is really the lives of the saints. That's that, right. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's so, right. And that's what this book really is. Let Let Beauty Speak is a call to arms for all of us to to be the saints that you know our particular era. Is desperate for us, crying out for us. So, you know, it's simply divided into 10 chapters, 10 principles mm-hmm. that help cultivate this art of being human, that help each of us to live beautiful lives, you know, with obviously, again, uh, all the truths of our faith undergirding how we live, but ultimately beauty being at the forefront, uh, which uh, is really the very, you know, transcendental or as you put it, the very apologetic that our times, I think, so need.
1: Yeah. You start out with the principle of wonder, and um, that's a great place to begin because we are so uh, chronically distracted uh, constantly by uh, our our phones, uh, by all kinds of screens. How do we recapture uh, that sense of wonder that also leads to humility?
2: It's amazing because I ask that same question of, some of our high school guys today on this retreat, and I said, you know, what does it mean to live with childlike faith? And one of one them, he's a freshman, so he's 15 years old, he, he raises his hand, he says, well, it, it means to have wonder and, and <laughs> awe, you know, uh, which is that, that spirit of, of a child that is ready uh, for every moment to be an encounter with, uh, with goodness, with glory, with adventure. The problem is right now, you know, uh, from our phones to um, just the political sort of climate that we're living in, to the, the, the media being what it is. Everything is just so um, constant. And it's, and it's as you put earlier, it's, it's a torrent of just, you know, ceaseless noise yeah. that we're having to navigate, that we're having to make sense of. And, you know, until we put our phones down and until we step out of our city life or even comfortable suburban lives and sort of get out into the beauty of creation or step into a you know a, a museum where there's beautiful captivating artwork or or you know we stand atop a mountain range we look at a sunset we hold a newborn child in our arms you know until we allow ourselves to stand in awe uh we'll just continue to go the way of the world and mm-hmm. you know that's what's sad if we don't have wonder if we don't have awe we won't even perceive the beauty around us we won't even find god's glory in the ordinary uh, we'll probably become like most people that we, we know, which is cynical and a little uh, sad and mm-hmm. just kind of like waiting for the next weekend or next vacation to roll around. But God wants so much more for all of
1: us. Yeah. You talk about freedom, too, and you tie it to joyful self-mastery and virtue. Elaborate on that for me.
2: Ugh, is there anything that this world needs more right now than yeah. even just baseline virtue? I mean... We hear that word, and it's actually a pretty mysterious word to the modern ear. Mm -hmm. It's not used very much anymore. But we all know that, you know, different from values, which can be subjective, you know, you have your values, I have mine, virtue is is rooted in objective truth. And by extension, it's the only way to interior freedom, to that joyful self-mastery that you just referenced. And, you know, whether we're talking about freedom fighters, you know, of days gone by, or you know the heroic martyrdoms of you know Saint Maximilian Kolbe or, or Edmund Campion for that matter. Um, there's something about people who are able to deny themselves, who are able to live uh, the, the cardinal virtues, the theological virtues. In, in today's world, it's just so rare that it can't help but catch people's attention. And I think that's really what that principle is about: is is just living this beautiful virtuous life. Um, that brings a, a little touch of, of Eden, a little touch of that, you know, original harmony that we were created with to bring that back uh, into the world and to remind people, you know, this is what it means to be
1: human. Yeah, yeah. You've got a uh, boys' school there. Friendship play an important part in their disciple-making?
2: Indeed. In fact, I, I tell the guys all the time, there's nothing more powerful on our campus than, than the apostolate of friendship, you know, uh, of the, we'll say, gosh, 46 it's almost 60 guys who have become Catholic over the last three school years um, <laughs> I, I would say uh, two-thirds of them at least 40 of them have made the decision ultimately to become Catholic because they were inspired by a friend yeah. they were inspired by a big a big brother obviously their teachers do a great job at inspiring them and those of us who work in campus ministry but it's it's really their friends and that's that culture of conversion, you know, um, that we were talking about earlier, it's built by friends who are linked arms, on mission together, and ultimately, you know, building something really quite beautiful. And that's what we see, of course, in the lives of so many saints, you know, Ignatius, Francis Xavier, Peter Faber, they were all friends. In fact, they were all roommates at the University of Paris 500 years ago, and Mm -hmm. just started dreaming about what the Society of Jesus would become. You know, I'm, I'm right now listening to the biography of St. Dominic Savio by St. John Bosco. You know, one of the <laughs> few biographies of a saint by a saint. And yeah. It's like, okay, this makes sense. Saints have hung out together throughout all of human history. We should be those saints here and now.
1: Very good. Uh, sports is big there. So I'm I'm interested to know, uh, you guys, I'm sure, handle sports differently than a lot of schools. Tell me how you make this part of disciple-making. That's
2: a great question. And, you know, I will say, first and foremost, there's just a standard of excellence on the sports field, um, whether we're talking football, lacrosse, basketball, swimming. You know, last school year alone, we won three state championships. That was football. Wrestling and baseball in the state of Florida, all in one school year. That, that's pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, but you know, right alongside that, you know, it was our star quarterback who um, was sort of leading the charge in becoming Catholic and convincing several of his fellow football players to join our CIA. It was more recently several of our kind of top baseball players who have had a real deepening of conversion that has inspired many of their friends on the baseball team. So you know, there's always so much opportunity. To form young men in virtue on the sports field, but again, I would say it's it's more the interpersonal dynamic and the friendships that they have with each other because of their sports that leads to you know the, the deepening of conversion. And I can only hope, you know, because all of our jerseys and all of our helmets say AMDG front and center. Mm-hmm. I can only hope that that also has an impact on on the teams that. Uh, so often lose to us, but hopefully <laughs> can see that we're doing it. You know, not for our glory, but for the Lord. Yeah. And we got to stay humble. We have to, and that's something that all young men struggle with is, is humility. So that's got to be at the forefront as well.
1: You focus also on one of the principles in the book deals with community, and you tell the story about a small group uh, you were spelunking near the Carthusian monastery outside of Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> tell us that story.
2: Oh, my goodness. Uh, How much time do we have? We've got about two minutes. (laughs) That's perfect. So, you know, we have 110 guys on a European pilgrimage. This is years ago, and I'm just a chaperone helping lead this trip for a particular high school. And it's the last day. Seven of us decided we were looking for an adventure before we had to head to the airport and eventually come back home to to the States. And so we decided, uh, let's go spelunking. And we had a map that was going to get us from a Carthusian monastery up a mountain into a cave At one point, you know, we are literally having to wiggle our way through a crack to get into this beautiful cavern where uh, we saw all over the walls inscriptions, many of them uh, of of a quite religious nature, scripture Mm -hmm. verses, you know, phrases like AMDG. We look all over the the ground, and there's just burnt out candles and prayer cards everywhere, and we realized, hang on a second, this is a a holy place, a sacred place. This is where probably many monks have spent long nights in prayerful vigil inside that cave. And uh, years later, I'm still friends with several of the guys that w- went and, and were a part of that adventure together, uh, one of whom is a seminarian, two of whom are married and living beautiful Catholic lives with their with their wives, and I think kids. They're starting to have kids already. Uh, it's just amazing what an experience like that can do to help a young man, you know, really leave boyhood behind. Yeah and step into manhood and to realize, hey, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have gone before us. If, if we're really serious about responding to this call to holiness, we're not alone. There's great, even Carthusian monks that will never be canonized, that will meet in heaven, uh, who you know have, have gone before us as well. And it was just a, a powerful, powerful experience of, of community, of brotherhood, and again, of adventure.
1: Uh, uh, how do people stay in touch with the work you're doing?
2: Yeah, the easiest thing is just to go to letbeautyspeak.com. You can find easy links to buy the book on Amazon, Ignatius Press. Again, that's letbeautyspeak.com.
1: All right. Jimmy, uh, great making your acquaintance. I hope we talk again soon.
2: Thank you so much, Al. It's been a privilege.
1: Jimmy Mitchell, Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. The book's available, of course, in the online bookstore. I'm Al Cresta, and I'll be right back. I'm Al Cresta, one of the 20th century's uh, great and heroic Christians. was the Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he ended up being executed right at the very close of the Second World War upon Hitler's direct uh, command. Uh, he's probably best known uh, for a book which in English is rendered the cost of discipleship. Well, I think in German it's simply discipleship. My guest, Ken Craycraft, holds the Chair of Moral Theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology in Cincinnati. Uh, you can find his writings at the Catholic Herald, and you can follow him on Twitter at uh, K.R. k r. Craycraft. Good to have you with me, Ken. Thanks. Thank you, Al. It's nice to be back with you. So let me begin with asking, why should we... Pay attention to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, uh, there are a couple
3: of reasons, not the least of which is that he presents such a model of the, uh, the quest for authentic discipleship. Um, as I write in the, the piece in the Catholic Herald, even though he was a Lutheran theologian, mm-hmm. he has so much to teach us Catholics about the way that grace works in our lives, the uh, cost that uh, God calls us to endure by taking up the cross. Uh, and Bonhoeffer, e- even though he died at the age of 30, an, an enormous what you mentioned but very Christ the center and ethics
1: Ken for some reason can for some reason you're breaking up on me I'm losing about 50% of what you're saying I don't know why so I'm going to have our producer try to reconnect us otherwise you sounded great but for some reason or other there was this uh, breakup uh, so we're going to we'll get back with you uh, really want to hear what you're having to say again Dietrich Bonhoeffer one of the heroic figures, a uh, Christian figure of the 20th century. And I should mention that in Mark Riebling's book, Church of Spies, The Pope's Secret War Against Hitler, uh, in which he talks about uh, the role of Pius 12th in uh, the resistance to Hitler and even assassination plots of Hitler. Uh, Bonhoeffer shows up in that book in conversation with a number of Catholic figures, and it's clear from the portrayal of Bonhoeffer in *Church of Spies* that he was uh, was thinking very deeply. In fact, his doctoral dissertation dealt with the idea of the communion of saints. But, uh, but again, he he died relatively young, and uh, I think was 38, 39 years old uh, when he was executed. And and say, Ken, you back with us? yeah i'm back now' oh, good about that yeah no it's okay let's uh so you're saying Bonhoeffer uh the his outstanding work in just uh apostle discipleship um my understanding too is that he had a very high view of the church and his doctoral work was on the communion of saints
3: yeah it was called Sanctorum communio he did and you know the interesting thing about Bonhoeffer and i've always you know it's 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 not a great thing to speculate, but sometimes you can't help but speculate <laughs> what would have happened if someone had, if someone had survived. And yep. I think Bonhoeffer is one of those people, because clearly, both in his, uh, his dissertation on the Church, in his uh, book Discipleship, and in other writings, he seemed to be moving away from a traditional Lutheran understanding yep. of grace and the structure of the Church and the sacraments, and much more toward a Catholic understanding. And I think that really is the case in in discipleship, when he talks about this distinction between costly and cheap grace. Mm -hmm. And I've always read discipleship as sort of uh, kind of the death throes of of Bonhoeffer's clinging with, with his fingernails to Lutheranism, even while seeing that Luther's theology of grace in many ways brought, brought upon the Church the disaster which rendered it incapable of responding, that is the Lutheran Church, to responding to Hitler in the 1930s and led to his being a part of the resisting Church or the underground Church. And I really think that Bonhoeffer has a lot to teach us Catholics, not just from the standpoint of being a Lutheran, but of saying things that sound very much like a Catholic would say it and not like a Lutheran would say it. You know, he was also very influential on the founder of the Comboni missionaries, for example. Uh, among other, uh, very, you know, impacts that he had on the way that Catholics think about grace yeah. and, and faith and, and so forth. So, Bonhoeffer had a gra- has a great deal to teach us. And I, I what, what I put in the, uh, in the piece is that, you know, for Lent, especially because he talks about the importance of, of discipleship and about taking up the cross and bearing the cross and resisting the temptation to cheap grace. And, and he, he, he's a nice guide, uh, as it were, Al, through the, the 40 days of Lent, through the desert of Lent, because he, of course, himself uh, you know, spent most of his career uh, as, as on the, on, basically on the run from the Nazis right. in the last two years of his life in prison.
1: Yeah, no, very good. Uh, distinguish what he means, uh, cheap grace from costly grace. Does he define it very clearly? He does.
3: And in fact, a couple of quotes from from the book. He says, cheap grace is, he calls cheap grace the mortal enemy of our church. And here's a quote from the book. Quote, cheap grace means justification of sin, but not of the sinner. Unquote. (laughs) Wow. It is, it is, quote, a baptism. Now listen to this, Al, and and tell me, could this have been written by a Catholic? It is, quote, a baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal
1: confession, unquote. <laughs> yeah. I
3: mean, and he gets, you see what I mean? Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's a very, very Catholic statement.
3: <laughs> yeah. And then he goes on to say, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, without the cross, without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. And he, he contrasts this with what he calls costly grace, which, causes, which calls us to take up the yoke of Christ. But it's so beautiful the way he states it out, because he says it's costly because Jesus says to take his yoke. It's grace because Jesus helps us bear the yoke. And if we think about that imagery of bearing the cross with Christ, we're also drawn into what I think is the most profound and important thing that Bonhoeffer says in discipleship, and that is, when we are called to die with Christ, We are called to participate in the cross in the same way he did. And I think the most profound insight that he gives us is that that requires us to be forgiving of others. Because after Mm. all, that's what the cross was, our forgiveness. And he says we, he actually says we bear the burden of others. We bear the sin of others. And we're called to forgive others in order to to bear that sin. And it, and it, again, it, for 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 our Christian lives, it's very important. But for Lent as well, it's, I think it's a profoundly important message. Yeah, uh,
1: he he's held up as one of the great heroes of 20th century uh, Christianity, uh, and uh, I, I'm sure that he is also well appreciated within the Lutheran uh, tradition as well. But uh, I'm just curious: have, have people pointed out to you that uh, Bonhoeffer, at least in certain of his writings, really sounds more Catholic than he does Lutheran?
3: I, I haven't seen a lot of people write
1: about it. I yeah, know that, okay. uh,
3: for for instance, Eric Metaxas wrote a, a giant biography of yeah,
1: him, and, and he I read that when does. it first came out. Yeah
3: yeah, and he does his best to to say, no, Bonhoeffer was not moving toward the church. Bonhoeffer right. was a solid Lutheran. But even in discipleship itself, he when he talks about cheap grace and costly grace, he brings up Luther, but but I think it's an attempt to try to save Luther from himself, and I don't think he quite does it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I actually, what I thought you were going to ask me is about um some of the Uh, Some scholarship uh, reading his letters and papers from prison. He wrote he he was he was able to smuggle out through sympathetic guards a great number of letters uh, and and papers and writings when he was imprisoned, and some of those articles and letters are very very reminiscent of the diary of Saint Teresa of Calcutta. Remember when that came out? There was all of this hullabaloo about her struggling with doubts and struggling with uh, her her own a sense of abandonment of God
1: yes, and so forth. Yes, yeah. that's right.
3: Bonhoeffer, does, Bonhoeffer goes went through his own dark night of the soul, and but rather than saying that God had abandoned him, he takes us deeper into our understanding of what it means ourselves to be abandoned in the world, in the same way that Christ was abandoned in the world, and yet overcame the world through his death and, and resurrection. So rather than his letters and papers from prison being a diary of doubt, it's a diary of moving deeper into the participation of Christ's own suffering, yeah. both in the garden and on the cross, and and I think it's very it's very comparable to uh, Saint Therese of Cal- Saint Teresa of Cal- Calcutta's diary, and, and in fact I encourage people to read those together, the letters and letters and papers of prison uh, from uh, Bonhoeffer together with with her diary, because it, it gives us a profound insight into the depths of Christ's own Sense of abandonment in the garden when he said, very quickly, uh, 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 very quickly in succession, let this cup pass from me, but immediately uh, not my will but thine. And, yeah. and that's Bonhoeffer teaches us that in his own spiritual life, but in his writing as well.
1: Yeah. There, there was a period of time when I was still in college a while back uh, where Bonhoeffer was considered to be a model of, quote, secular Christianity. So those yeah. those passages in which uh exactly. the absence of god is emphasized uh these particular contemporary theologians were saying that he was uh, an uh, it, it, he was in advance of the death of god movement uh,
3: the death of god movement yeah. yeah that's that's just what i was going to say yeah he he often was was pointed to by the so called death of god movement people like uh, uh, altheiser and and or altheiser rather and uh and others who mm-hmm. um who, who you know sort of brought up this this whole idea of christianity without christ and so forth but uh but that's not a, if you read it carefully and, and fortunately there have been a lot of people who have uh, uh, very strongly criticized that reading of bonhoeffer yeah. as not taking seriously everything that he said in those letters and papers <laughs> and 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 digging deeply into what he really meant by that but sort of wanting to champion him as sort of a secular theologian or a death of god theologian But that's not really what he was about. What he was talking about was participating in Christ's own abandonment in the world uh, through his, you know, facing his accusers and dying for the very people. And this is what's another profound insight from Bonhoeffer that we all know, but the way he says it really brings it out, dying for the very people who killed him. Death. Dying for yes. the very people who killed him, and and if we if we think about that as, as Catholic Christians, it really draws us into the depth of, of uh, the command for us to forgive and to bear one another's burdens in a way that sometimes we, we, we don't uh, we don't take seriously as seriously as we might.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, very good. Yeah, it is funny, isn't it? I mean, there are people who take uh, you know again Mother uh, Teresa's uh, times of of uh, her sense her long sense of abandonment. And not feeling uh, the presence of God, uh, and somehow uh, elevate those as that's that's the real that's the real uh, uh, Mother mm-hmm. Teresa, and then simply ignore right. and then simply ignore yeah. her practice of receiving the Eucharist or other things she said. the same thing with Bonhoeffer. Well, you know the real Bonhoeffer is the negative Bonhoeffer or the atheistic yeah. Bonhoeffer, and completely ignoring yeah, that, what he writes.
0: No, I
3: I think that Bonhoeffer and, and those and those especially in the letters and papers from prison and other writings as well. I think Bonhoeffer is the epitome of that passage in Mark that says, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." Right. Yes. And and nobody who nobody who tries to criticize Bonhoeffer, especially those who try to sort of hijack his legacy, can possibly understand the pressure that he was under. Of course, as a as a prisoner uh, uh, under the Nazi regime. You know, and it's interesting how. Bonhoeffer probably could have escaped. Uh, it's, 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 the record is, is sketchy, but there's a, there's, it's, there's a fairly good historical, uh, historical evidence that a sympathetic guard, the same guard that helped him to smuggle out his letters and papers from prison, offered to, offered to, uh, to help him escape and to go into exile with him. But Bonhoeffer would not do it because he first of all, he had become engaged right before he was arrested, so he right. had a fiance, and that was a public engagement, so people knew who she was. But more importantly, his own family. He feared for th- what would happen to his own family if he himself escaped from prison. So even while he 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 arguably had the opportunity to escape himself, he would not do it because he was worried about the cost that would be incurred by his family. So again. We see a living example. That's why I said earlier, it isn't just his writing; it's his life that is such an example for us, for us Christians. And you know, you began, we began, you began by asking me, you know, what we Catholics can learn. And and one of the things that 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 I said we can't speculate, but certainly uh, whether or not whether or not you know he was moving uh, in terms of his, his ecclesiastical identification, there isn't any question whatsoever that we can mine deep Catholic thought. Uh, from this, uh, from this, uh, you know, great Lutheran thinker.
1: Yeah, yeah. I agree with you 100%. You mentioned letters and papers from prison, and I assume you would, uh, recommend cost of discipleship as well.
3: Yeah, it's just called discipleship under the new translation. The new translation, right? Course, yeah, and then Christ the center is a, is a third one, a very very good short book, Christ the center, which I also recommend very highly uh, if somebody wants to read more deeply into Bonhoeffer.
1: Ken, thanks so much. Great talking with you. Thank very you. helpful. Well, it was
3: great to be with you. Same here. Take care.
1: Ken Craigcraft, uh, it's a really a fine article which we'll have available for you in the uh, CRESTA Guest Archives today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lenten message to Catholics. Hey, good afternoon. I'm Al CRESTA. Let me uh, squeeze this moment (laughs) for something I think is real important, and that is tomorrow. We have our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference. It's going to be at Father Gabriel Richard High School. Father Gabriel Richard High and Ave Maria Radio team up every year for this conference. This year the title is Male and Female, He Created Them, Responding to Gender Dysphoria in Truth and Charity. We start at 8.15 in the morning, light breakfast. It's all free. We'll wrap it up at noon. F-G-R-H-S dot org. That's Father Gail Richard High School. F-G-R-H-S dot org slash events. And I look forward to seeing you there Saturday morning. I'm Al Cresta.